From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. On January 12th, 2012, the novel The Fault in Our Stars was published. It was the fourth solo novel for my guest today, young adult author John Green. And in the first week of its publishing, The Fault in Our Stars sold more copies than all of John's previous hardcover books combined. It reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, received acclaim from critics and authors alike. 2014, a movie adaptation of the book came out. In other words, it was a massive, massive success. But all the success for John, it ended up leading to some dark places, which actually brings us to a warning before we get started. There are some discussions of mental health difficulties in this episode, so if that subject can be difficult or triggering for you, please take care while listening. John told me that back when he first graduated from college in 2000, he didn't think writing was a realistic career path for him. Literary stardom and all the problems that it could bring with it were not at all on his radar. His first job out of college, in fact, was as an Episcopalian minister in training in Columbus, Ohio. Why did you want to be a minister? Um, Being a minister appealed to me partly because it was a way to talk about big ideas with smart people. But I had completely romanticized all of the ideas around being a minister. What was your romantic ideal of being an Episcopal priest? Like, what what did the romanticized version in your head look like? Uh, getting to deliver a speech once a week about a subject that interested me to an audience of people who would care about my opinion. But I remember, like, early on in that process, I was in a basement with the minister who was, like, the head of my discernment process or whatever. And he was ordering candles out of uh, out of a catalog. Uh And I was like, oh, you got to order the candles out of the catalog? And he was like, yeah. I mean, what do you think happens to candles, man? Like, they burn down, and then you have to buy more candles. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want that job. (laughs) Ordering candles was too gritty and real for you? (laughs) Yeah, it just seemed, like, stressful. And I'm the kind of person who forgets to order the candles, and then suddenly it's Sunday morning, and and the poor— Kids who light the candles don't have any candles to light. Just all that stuff started to stress me out. And then the other, the other thing that he said to me that was pretty impactful was he said, "You realize you're going to have to go to church a lot." And I was like, "Yeah, I like going to church." And he was like, "Yeah, I know you like going to church, but do you like going to church eight times a week every week for the rest of your life?" And the answer to that was like, "No." When was the moment you decided, okay, I don't want to do this anymore? Then. Well, when I was working as a student chaplain at the Children's Hospital, it was apparent to me pretty early on that all of my fancy ideas about why suffering happens and the role that, you know, an omnipotent God has in suffering, all of those, like, ideas that I'd, I'd read about in books were completely useless and total bullshit. Whoa. So... Like, what ideas? Oh, I mean, there's all kinds of this problem is is called like theodicy in um, religious studies, like the problem of evil. How do you deal with evil in a world where there's ostensibly this God who's all good and all knowing and all powerful? It's just none of that stuff, even though I believed it, none of it was very helpful. Um, None of it could really 
stand up, I guess, to the uh, to the scope of suffering. And that's what you were confronting every day as part of your job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this this kid uh, came into the hospital with bad burns, and I. Uh, it was the scope of this kid's suffering. You know, the amount of uh, just the amount of pain that he was obviously in, and you know, he was an innocent kid. In in my opinion, in you know, I, I know I I don't want to step on anyone's faith or anything, but in my opinion, there's no world where that where that happens, and uh, and and God is powerful. And that was that was a change in your faith. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That that kid, he was only three or four years old, uh, had, yeah, had a huge impact on my life. And, and for a long, long time, I, I just assumed that he had died. And I was really, I would think sometimes, you know, I could just Google him. You know, he had a, had a pretty easy to Google name. Um, but then I, I just, I didn't want to know, you know, and then eventually I did, I did Google him a few years ago and uh, he's, he's fine. <laughs> like he's, He's fine. You know, he's doing great. So maybe you were wrong about God. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Did that thought occur to you? <laughs> no, it didn't occur to me, actually, but it's occurring to me now. Um, yeah, maybe I need to go back and reevaluate. I don't know. Back in 2000, though, young post-collegiate John Green didn't know what to do next. His faith had changed. He didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. But there was this one thing that he had always loved, writing. He'd been doing it since high school. And he thought, maybe I could get a job, not as a writer necessarily, but somewhere in the vicinity of writing. So he moved to Chicago and got a job at a magazine called Booklist, which reviewed books. It was mostly data entry. Okay. <laughs> but they did let me review books as well. <laughs> got it. <laughs> um, you said, I, I read some, some, someplace where you said that you, uh, you specialize in reviewing books about Islam and conjoined twins. Well, I had a number of reviewing niches yeah <laughs> there's a lot of books about conjoined twins you'd be surprised i am surprised <laughs> there are there are far more books about conjoined twins than there are conjoined twins currently in the world i think it's just irresistible to novelists uh. as a you know as a, as a metaphor for like where does one person end and another person begin and yeah. all that stuff I, I don't know to the extent that you can talk about this or want to talk about this, but I, I, I understand that it was like during this period in Chicago that you that you underwent sort of a severe bout of anxiety and depression. It, yeah. Can you talk about that? Like what was how did what what brought that on and, and what was going on in your life at that time? Well, I'd gone through a big breakup that I, I thought at the time caused my depression. But I now, of course, understand that um, the depression contributed to the breakup. Mm. And I just, um, uh, there's a great Emily Dickinson poem. There's a line, something like, and then a plank in reason broke and I dropped down and down. And that's what it was like for me. It was like, uh, you know, almost like the ground fell out from underneath me and I, I just kept plummeting and I got, you know, I got I got really sick. I have I, I I've always had problems with anxiety. I have obsessive compulsive disorder, and I've had periods. I'd had periods before 
um, where I struggled with with depression, but this was much more serious. Uh, and then eventually, I, I I called my parents, and um, and they came and they came. They 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 drove up to Chicago and 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 took me home. And I tried to quit my job. I went into the office and explained to my boss that I that I needed to quit because I had to go home because I had to like get into you know a a, a more serious uh, mental health treatment kind of situation. And my boss was like, ah, why don't you just take a few weeks off? Like, who's, who's said anything about quitting? Let's just take it down a notch, take a few weeks off, and uh, let us know um, how you're feeling after that. And uh, so I was like, but, you know, how, how are you going to how, – how's the magazine going to come out? Like, how are you – you got to find someone to do my job. These books aren't going to review themselves. This data isn't going to enter itself more like it. <laughs> He was like a character out of a noir mystery novel, and he would always call me kid. And uh, he paused for a long time. He said, I I don't want you to take this the wrong way, kid, but I think we're going to get by. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it was just incredibly generous, um, you know, and and then that job was there for me when I I got better. What what was the, what was the event, what what led you to place that call to your parents? I was suicidal. And uh, oh, wow. I felt like I needed to call them. Right. And to their credit, you know, they um, they immediately understood how serious it was. And even though they're very busy people and they, you know, dropped everything. And, and then took me, you know, and then took me home, you know, this 24-year-old in a very, very fragile state and, you know, fed me and, you know, got me to my doctor's appointments every day. And and slowly, over the course of several months, I began to kind of recover, I guess, you know, a, a sense of strength, um, a feeling of starting to feel a little more resilient over time. Eventually, that feeling of resilience became strong enough for John to go back to Chicago and pick up where he left off got his old job back doing data entry and conjoined twin book reviewing. And he also started to think more seriously about his own writing. Over the next several years, John would go to work in the morning and then come home at night and write. That writing eventually turned into a book. That book got the attention of a publisher. And in 2005, Looking for Alaska, John's debut novel, was published. It went on to win a prestigious award, the Prince Award for Excellence in Young Adult Literature, which meant John officially had a new job, novelist. And at this point, most people in John's position would probably hunker down and focus on writing their next novel. Like, that would be enough, right? And that is what John did. But it was also around this time that he stumbled onto a side gig, one that would grow to become as much a part of his identity as being an author was. He launched a YouTube channel with his brother, Hank. Well, let's talk about your YouTube career. So tell me about, like, your journey to YouTube. How did you first decide you know what, I'm going to put up a video of myself on YouTube and do that. What was the, how did that happen? So I went to boarding school when my brother was 11, and I never really knew him outside of childhood. Uh And I admired him. I thought he was a cool guy. I thought he was interesting, but I didn't know him that well. Oh, interesting. And we were, by 2006, we were becoming closer, but we never talked on the phone we only communicated via instant messenger and 
And so we sort of together had this idea, well, what if we started making a, a video series where we talked back and forth to each other? And if we did that for a year, like we might, you know, really get to know each other better. Hello, John. By now you have received my message that we will no longer be communicating through any textual means. No more instant messaging, no more emailing, only video blogging. This is the first video they ever posted. It's from Hank to John. It's just a couple minutes long. Hank is an extreme close-up in what looks like a dark bedroom or a basement with this poster of a bear on the wall. The next day, John responded with his own video. I'm not going to be good at this. Good morning, Hank. It's January 2nd. 2007, I just spent two hours and 13 minutes downloading your two minute and one second video, which can mean only one thing, that I'm at mom and dad's house, the last residence in the United States of America with dial-up internet. So were you even thinking about this as like something that you wanted people to watch or was that, where was that on your list of priorities for this project? I would say that we were conscious of having an audience. I mean, early on, Hank said to me, something that I I have held very close ever since, which is, he said, it doesn't matter how many people watch what we make. It matters how many people love what we make. And, you know, the internet is terrible at that metric. It's terrible at, at measuring depth of affection. I mean, four or 500 people were watching. And so to us, like, that was amazing. Like, to be able to make something for, for 400 people twice a week or three times a week, it was, you know, a wonderful opportunity like to, to go back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, in, in, in some ways, like, I had the, you know, like the room full of people that I wanted to talk to when, when, when I dreamed of becoming a minister. Right. Um, I, I, I didn't yet know, like, what kind of conversations to have with those people, but it felt really cool to be able to talk to a few hundred people. And they were, you know, they were really, really involved um, in in the show from the beginning. So how would, how did they show that? Well, like early on, I remember I was I was hospitalized for this weird infection behind my eye. And my brother said, if you can take a picture of yourself with something on your head to cheer John up. And I think of like the 350 views of that video initially got, we received like 320 pictures. Oh my! And God. this was in an age before the iPhone. So like it was reasonably hard to take a picture of yourself with something on your head. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was really, that was the first moment, which was only a couple months in that Hank and I were both like, oh, that's weird. Like almost everybody who's watching this, you know, cares enough to go out of their way, send an email to Hank with a picture of an iguana on their head or something. That's what we call in the business a high response rate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right. Slowly over time, the audience for their YouTube channel grew. A couple hundred subscribers, then a couple thousand. And John continued to write. In 2006, he published his novel, An Abundance of Catherines. And in 2008, he published another one called Paper Towns. He was married. He had a house with a lawn. He had a beloved YouTube channel and a successful career as an author. John was content. And and at this point, like, how did you think about, did you have, like, did you want more readers? What were your hopes and dreams when it came to finding an audience and the size of that audience? I really liked my audience back then, and I, and I felt really lucky to be able to, to write for, 
you know, for, for any anybody. And, you know, from my perspective, I mean, I I think Paper Town sold thirty or 40,000 copies in hardcover, and that seemed great. That seemed wonderful. I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I remember I, I did a... Um, I did a signing once, like not too long after Paper Towns came out in 2008 with Stephanie Meyer, who wrote the Twilight books. Okay. And there were all the, it was the biggest audience I'd ever, I'd ever read for by a very wide margin. You know, most of my events at that time were attended by between zero and, and five people. And there were like 200 kids in this, in this room. And they were all, they all had these like handmade t-shirts um, you know, talking about uh, Twilight and 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 the characters and and you know the questions that that they asked were like so detailed and so in the weeds and and they'd responded so deeply to the world building of of this book and you know then we did the signing and I had like a line of three people and you know next to me there's this line of like two hundred kids and I I remember thinking like that's just never going to be me. Because I, I, I'm just never going to write a book like that, that that people re, you know respond to in that way. Did you want it to be you? Um, I I I didn't really, to be honest. Like I I, I didn't. It seemed it seemed stressful. Um, you know, like it I, it 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 seemed a little scary. Like to 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 be honest with you, like I, I that's what I was thinking. You didn't have any jealousy of her line. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I did. I pro. I, again, I, like, I, I, I thought I was doing good. Like, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've, I never, I, hmm, did I? Maybe I did. I don't know. Um, you can't remember. You you honestly maybe I did. Are you being honest with me, John Green? Like, are you like, or is it like, are I, you trying? To, yeah. Like, now I'm trying to figure out. Like, are you trying to f- dig up a feeling of jealousy so that you'll seem like more like a normal human being, and you actually didn't feel jealous at all? I or did you actually really, or did, did you actually feel jealous, and you're just like, not, but you're sort of embarrassed of that feeling, which is no, because I no, I want no, I I definitely would prefer to have felt jealous, <laughs> um, because I worry that if I don't if I don't portray myself as having been jealous, then I will seem ungrateful. Right. If I'm if I'm if I'm running how I want to come off in the interview, I was I was jealous. <laughs> yes, I think, but you weren't actually. I mean, mostly I just felt like, oh my god, like that's that's intense. Like that that seems. Uh, a little overwhelming. Yeah. Well, it's also like, I think it's a little bit more. To be clear, you had a pretty, you had a pretty great gig, uh, right? Like you were, you were successful enough that like you got lots of great positive feedback, but it wasn't like a gigantic hassle. Y- yeah, exactly. Um. So, so I guess just sort of like it, like let's pick a day. I don't know around. 2009 like mm-hmm. you're writing novels you're making these videos what does an average day look like for you now from the outside so now i'm living in indianapolis i'm married we're you know living in our first home it has a lawn i have to like mow the lawn which i would, had romanticized 
so much, but then it's it's terrible. I don't know if you've. I, I imagine that you have never mowed a lawn. I've. Uh, I'm well, gonna, uh, I, I'm gonna take that. that as a compliment because I have in fact mowed a lawn. But I, I sound like such a, a witty urbane uh, urbanite that 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 I must come off as a person who's never mowed a lawn. I've mowed. Lawn. I I. I I just always I I yeah I imagine you living in a living in an apartment somewhere. No no I grew like up a, I grew like up fancy... I grew up like seventy miles from Indianapolis, in Cincinnati Ohio. Are you serious? Yeah yeah. Oh, I'm from oh. the Midwest. You know exactly you know exactly where I'm living. Yeah. So okay let me let me go back then. I apologize for maligning your your uh, your lawn your lawn experiences. I accept your apology and I'm also secretly oh. flattered that you made the mistake. <laughs> And embarrassed about being flattered, if we can continue down this rabbit hole of my own emotional response to your comment. This cake has many layers. <laughs> I'm living in Indianapolis. I'm writing during the day and making videos. And how how are you feeling about your future at that point? Is this like, are you thinking like, this is going to be my life? What were you thinking? Uh, I was hopeful at that point that I could write for a living for for the rest of my career. But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly didn't have any expectation of of what what ended up happening. Thank you for providing a perfect throw to our break. By the way, um, <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. what ended up happening after these words from our sponsors? <laughs> Seriously, that is what's coming up after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with John Green. By 2010, John Green had published three solo novels. He had a growing YouTube channel that he ran with his brother, and he'd built a quiet and successful life for himself in Indianapolis. But all of that was about to change, at least the quiet part. Because it was around this time that he was entering the home stretch on his fourth book. The plot was inspired by the death of a young woman who was part of his YouTube community. The book tells the story of two teenagers with terminal cancer who meet in a support group and fall in love. It's got kids and cancer and heartbreak. It's unbelievably sad. That book, of course, is The Fault in Our Stars. So I read it recently. I hadn't read it um, because I was already a very old adult by the time your young adult novel came out. Yeah. And I I read it in basically one sitting, and I pretty much wept the entire time. Uh, I read it on my phone. I was on the couch sitting next to my wife who was like, you know, sort of like answering emails or whatever. And then she'd occasionally sort of like absentmindedly me, ask me a question. And I would look up and I had tears streaming down my face. And I was like, <gasps> what? And she, and she thought I was like, <laughs> just really pathetic. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel bad. Did you cry while you were writing it? Oh, yeah. Every day. I mean, I think from the perspective, I wrote it at at the Starbucks at 86th and Ditch in Indianapolis, almost all of it. And I think from the perspective of the people who worked at Starbucks, I was just a person who would come in at like eight in the morning and open my computer and cry for three hours and then close my computer and leave. I definitely cried every day. So one of the weirdest, I guess, 
things about this about your story is that you you sit in a Starbucks and you cry every day for for months and months and months, and then you send it to your publisher, and then the world that like then it just explodes. What was the first inkling that like that you did have a hit on your hands? Well, before the book came out, I told my publisher I wanted to sign the first printing. Like I wanted to sign a sheet that would be bound into every copy of the first edition. And they were like, yeah, that's doable. And I thought that would be like 10,000 or 20,000 sheets of paper, and it turned into like 150,000. And so while I was signing those sheets of paper, I was cognizant of the fact that like, oh, if I didn't know that every every one of those copies would sell, but like I was signing more sheets than I'd sold hardcovers of all of my books combined. Right. So I, I definitely knew that it was already different, you know. But then after the book came out, it was um like it had a big first week, but then it the second week was almost as big, which which was very unusual and weird. And um I called I remember I called my agent and I said, When 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 is this gonna end? And she said, I don't I don't know. <laughs> um, if the Twilight line seemed stressful to you vicariously, yeah, here you have your own line now that is actually yours. Yeah. Yeah, it just reached an audience that I never... Wow, it's just a huge... Yeah, a lot of people. I would like to introduce to this date, to the people here, my brother in flesh, John Green. This is a YouTube video from right around the release of Fault in Our Stars. You see a dimly lit wooden stage in a medium-sized theater. John's brother Hank introduces him. John walks out on stage shyly with a book in his hands and the crowd going bonkers. They're screaming like that for a book reading. The Fault in Our Stars shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. At the LA Times Festival of Books, a line of 2,800 fans waited to get their copies signed. Take that, Stephanie Meyer. John's life as he knew it had changed for good. We ended up having to move just because people kept... uh... Like, we, we, we hadn't taken any steps to make our address private, and that became a bit of a bit of an issue. Especially Wait, people would look you up and just come to your house? Yeah. How often did that happen? A lot. Like, uh, multiple times a week. <gasps> Are you kidding me? No. What would they do? How does that look? What, what happens? You're just in your house and there's a d- ring on the doorbell? I mean, there, there were a, ver- a, variety, of, a variety of responses. I mean, I, I think sometimes it's just, you know— young people who are curious or who have heard that, like, we live in that neighborhood or whatever. Tell me about the first time that happened. They just, somebody knocked on my door and, and said that they heard that I lived there and would I sign their book, and so I signed the book. But then the, the next day, like, five people came. Um, I think that the, the first person might have mentioned it in school or something. And then um, my wife was, like, pretty f- frank with them about, like, the importance of having those boundaries, I guess. <laughs> she yelled at the kids? No, I mean, I wouldn't say she yelled, but I... I no, she didn't yell. <laughs> but she was... She she did say, like, he's not going to sign your books. <laughs> like, so, which is probably the right call. I mean, it, it, you know, it's just... It's, it was a weird... It was a weird thing overall, you know, because we... It had never even crossed our minds to, like 
think about our, you know, our privacy. Were you like, I mean, I'm just trying to picture this in in Annapolis, which is like sort of like a, it's a pretty, you know, it's a medium-sized Midwestern city where like there's not a lot of uh, best-selling authors wandering around. Was the fame more concentrated on you there? Or I don't know, how did that impact what it was like for you, the fact that you were in Indianapolis? I think maybe at first it was a little more concentrated, but then like people just were like, oh yeah, there he is at Target again. I don't know. I, I I I remember complaining about it once or like feeling, I mean, I always felt bad about complaining about it, but sometimes I would complain about it to my friend Chris. Uh-huh. And Chris told me something that that was really helpful. He said, you know, every time I go to Target, I get recognized by someone I went to middle school with or somebody I went to high school with or, you know, by somebody I work with or somebody I played golf with 15 years ago. And I don't have, like, all of these, like, issues about getting recognized at Target. Like, I just expect it. And, you know, you should probably just expect it. That's a really good advice. You have really good friends. <laughs> yeah. Stop making stop making such a big deal out of yourself, you know? Like, <laughs> cry me a river, Mr. Best-selling author. It's just Target, man. People know each other. <laughs> but still, it was weird. And John processed the weirdness in real time on his YouTube channel. Then the people start to show up, and there are a lot of them. They wear my face on their torso or Doctor Who shirts, and they bring book cakes, and they have things I wrote tattooed on their bodies, sometimes in borderline inappropriate places, all of which is amazing and beautiful and also, of course, completely terrifying. When did you return to your desk and start writing again, and what was that like? Oh, not great. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't good. Um, in in 2014 and 2015, I did try really, really hard to write write a book, and it didn't happen. And it was, at times, it was pretty painful. And and how did the inability to write manifest? Like, what would, like, before you would just go and sit at the Starbucks and then... Uh, you know, I was aware of the fact that, like, lots of people wanted me to write another book. Like, right. readers, but also people who worked in publishing, foreign publishers and... You know, all, all all kinds of different people um, really wanted another book from me, and and so, you know, I, yeah, I'd be lying if I didn't acknowledge that pressure. Before it's something that they that it feels like they're letting you do, yeah, and all of a sudden it becomes something that they want you to do quickly, or that they or that they need you to do. You know, that they right. have like quarterly results that are contingent upon you doing this thing. Yeah. Do you remember a meeting in particular where that 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 was made clear to you, or you felt that, or so. So the only time I felt it directly was one time when I was traveling in Europe, and I don't want to say who it was, but one of one of my foreign publishers was was like, "We really, we really need a book from you." Um, and and like laid out the reasons why, like. It was an existential threat to the company not to have a book from me, which was which was not super helpful. <laughs> How not to get a book out of an author? <laughs> Let me lay out the PowerPoint. <laughs> like I should, I should, I should have just written a book. Like, <laughs> like of course you should have. Like, but I mean, that's the whole point, right? Yeah. Um, I get. For me, I've always, I've always liked writing partly because it was. It, it's an escape. It's a. It's a way out of myself and. Because I couldn't write, it felt like that had been taken away from me. 
And then over time, it started to feel more and more like I was stuck inside of this this prison of myself, and I, I was never going to have a way out of it again. Coming up after the break, the prison closes further in on John. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with best-selling author John Green. So it's been almost five years since my most recent novel, The Fault in Our Stars, was published. Why nothing new since then? Well, in my case, because a very public success happened to coincide with a series of very private failures. This is a video John posted to his YouTube channel in late September of 2016. And as usual, he's sharing his struggles with his audience. An audience that by this point had bloomed to over a million subscribers. He talks about the struggles he's been going through to write his next book. How he's gone through several different drafts of several different ideas. And about how the movie adaptation of The Fault in Our Stars came out and led him to a sort of unsettling realization. And somewhere in that period, my job stopped being person who writes books, which is a present tense job title, and became person who wrote that one book, which is a past tense job title. I was elated and grateful that The Fault in Our Stars was reaching so many readers, but at the same time, I was terrified because I felt like I could never follow it up. John sounds anxious in this video, but it doesn't really convey the severity of what he was going through behind the scenes. I had, I had a really bad, really bad period. Um where I was really, really sick, like I couldn't read or function or I was, and I wasn't a very useful parent and couldn't pay attention to the world outside myself with any kind of clarity um, for several months. And it, yeah, it sucked. It was, it was awful. And, you know, the, the intensity, one of the, one of the things that's so horrible about pain, and I think, I think for me anyway, for, of, of psychic pain, and physical pain is it's like essential inexpressibility. It's like resistance to language. Mm -hmm. I was in this intense psychic pain and I also felt like I didn't have any way to share it. Like I couldn't find any kind of direct form or expression for it. I could only find like similes to describe it. Um, I mean, the short answer for, for why this happened is that I, I, I take medication and I stopped taking it. Uh Um, Can I ask why you stopped taking it? Yeah. Yeah, um, I felt I felt I worried that it was keeping me from writing. Right, and I mean that's that's uh, that's an insidious and old lie in in creative fields that uh, somehow untreated mental illness will make you more creative. And uh, I bought I bought into that lie. Uh, out of I guess a feeling of desperation and and and. and- and you did discover that it was a lie. It sounds like like it didn't. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, for one thing, it it did not did not result in me like suddenly being able to write well. It's it it's a little hard to it's a little hard to try to like rationally analyze some of these choices because they don't come from a place of reason. They they like it's a little bit of the wrong matrix to apply to it. I think. Right. But you know, eventually, eventually, I realized that I, I needed to. I needed to find a medication that was going to work for me, and I needed to take it every day. And, I mean, in addition to the other things that I do to take care of myself, including, you know, going Mm -hmm. to therapy and the cognitive behavioral therapy techniques that I've learned over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it must have been strange, I think. I don't know if this happened or not, but while you're struggling with that, 
There's this other thing that I uh, that I would imagine is equally insidious, which is the sort of like, well, you should be happy. Yeah, for sure. Right, like because you you like what it, your life it it was like you were at the pinnacle of your success. Yeah, and like I guess when which like outwardly you've 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 had the most sort of like public, you've got this really successful YouTube business. You've got like. A, a bestseller. You've got a movie based on the bestseller. You're 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 living the dream, and 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 it and that and, it, and that's the point where you're sort of at one of your lowest moments in, in your life. Right. I think that's pretty common, actually. Is it? So it, it, I mean, I'm wondering, like, so like, it's it's clearly not. There's no relationship between sort of outward success and and happiness or it seems like there isn't is there is the is there an inverse relationship in some ways like you said it's it's pretty common like is it actually the opposite like that this kind of like outsized success can can trigger sort of a break or 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 a decline for me personally yeah i mean you you said like you're living the dream, which which was which was true, and I don't I really I I am so grateful that um, that that all of that happened, and and that you know these really lovely movies were made by wonderful people from from my books, but um, like. That wasn't real. Like that wasn't really my dream. Like that, I, I I know that that's the dream, but like that really wasn't like necessarily what I, um, like what I thought of as as success. Good morning, Hank. It's Thursday. Special surprise bonus video. So, um, I have written a book. That feels good to say. Also a little terrifying. It's called Turtles All the Way Down. It comes out on October 10th, and it is available for pre-order now. Link in the doobly-doo below. My previous this is another clip from John's YouTube channel, which he posted in the fall of 2017. When Turtles All the Way Down came out, although it sold well, it was by no means the smash hit that The Fault in Our Stars was, which for John meant his life was getting a little bit back to normal. He still lives in Indianapolis in an undisclosed location. He still shops at Target. He still gets recognized no more and no less than his best friend, Chris. And he still spends his time writing and making videos for his brother, Hank. I'm going to ask you this weird basic question, John. Are you happy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, um, when I was younger, when people would ask me that question, it almost like offended me because I thought that happiness was so beside the point. And that the reason we, you know, the reason we were here was to try to be, you know, helpful to each other um, and then to try to pay attention. And that, you know, when you're trying to be helpful and you're trying to pay attention, sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're not, but happiness isn't the point. And part of me still feels that way. But I do think that, that younger me might have slightly undervalued happiness because when you when you can approach the world um, from a from a base point of a feeling of well being, it's easier to pay sustained attention. It's easier to open yourself up to the world. Um, you know, it's easier to make yourself vulnerable to the world, and that's really important. And so I, I yeah, yes, I'm I am happy, and yes, I I think that's important. I'm gonna ask another question, which is sort of going back to the very beginning. 
um, the part that we've been circling around this whole time, which is the sort of the why is there suffering part, right? And like, yeah, it seems like you've you've wrestled with the question of suffering and like the idea of suffering and actual suffering yourself. And I, and I guess where you had a version of God in your head when you graduated from college and and like that version got sort of like i guess destroyed um by your time in the in the children's hospital do you have a version now yeah yeah i i still read um the gospels i still go to church sometimes i still i still value the the lenses that religious experience gives to those big questions i i find it i find it helpful like i i i find it helpful to uh like in the episcopal church we uh we kneel a lot and i'm a i i really i it may be that rather than having anything to do with God or faith or whatever, that I just like uh, kneeling. <laughs> I just like, um, you know, yeah, get it, getting down on, on my knees and saying please and thank you. Even if there's no one to please or, th- or thank? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've never, I, I just don't, I'm not that interested in the question of like whether God is really real or like whether we made God up. Like, I think the critical thing for me is that we don't suffer alone and we don't have to suffer alone, that, that we can be with each other and, and care for each other. Right. So for me, it's not a question so much of why do we suffer. It's a question of how can we, how can, how can we lessen suffering and where we can't lessen it how can we be in solidarity with those who are suffering? Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Rob Zipko, Molly Messick, Caitlin Boguki, and Anna Ladd. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Mixing by Keegan Zemma. Music by Bobby Lord. Special thanks to Jenny Heller for sharing her John Green tour video with us. If you like Without Fail, follow the show. You can get every episode for free through Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.